0: One, two, three, four. Welcome to Convergence with Oladeji Tiamu. On this episode, I'll be speaking with Stephen Leon Kane, the founder and CEO of Fair Claims. Fair Claims is one of the nation's leading online dispute resolution platforms, and illustrates the important role technology can have in resolving and managing disputes. As will be on display throughout this episode, Stephen thinks creatively and critically about his role in improving the legal profession, in addition to how technology can be used to promote access to justice. Oh, and just as a disclaimer, Stephen is actually a die-hard Lakers fan. So I hope all the Celtics and Warriors fans listening to this will forgive him for his mistaken loyalties. All right, let's get to it. Stephen Leon Kane, the man of the hour. Welcome to Convergence. I I really appreciate you joining the conversation.
1: Thanks for inviting me. It's it's good to be here.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, in in law school world, this is a really unique academic year. So, I actually, as my first question for you, I just wanted to go back to when you had just finished law school at Stanford, and during that time period, what issues were you most passionate about?
1: That is taking us back. So, I, <laughs> yeah, this is good. When I when I graduated, I was most passionate, probably at the time, about two things. I was passionate about public service. Mm-hmm. And I was passionate about .com when I was in law school, sort of circa 2003 to 2006. Mm-hmm. Uh, my classmates all said the internet's dead
0: <laughs>
1: mm. because the the bubble had burst. I guess um, people didn't have faith that that it was a growing industry anymore. And but then obviously a lot of great companies came along, so it was far from dead. But I I think most of my classmates remember me going around talking about dot-com ideas. Uh, none of them had to do with legal tech. I think at the time I was obsessed with setting up pickup basketball games and uh, that still hasn't been solved, really. <laughs> so, uh, are, you, are you saying
0: like um, crowdsourcing, yeah. you know, like basketball games where random people can just come together at a location and play? Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, the, the,
1: the problem of you go to, you wanna play basketball, Maybe it's, you know, right now on the West coast, it's, it's, it's a uh, noon. So you, yeah. it's, it's a weekday at noon. You go to, you want to go play basketball, but who else is around to play with me right now? You know, and you go to an empty court or you go to a court and there's 35 people for 10 spots. Right. So, yeah, yeah that was, that was probably, that was what I was working on the most. And, uh, but those are two things I was, I was passionate about at the time and, and public service. Yeah you know, for sure, in a different sort of way, I, I thought about getting into government or running for office, I no longer want to do that. I think there are a lot of ways to solve big problems outside of government or, or running for office, nothing wrong with either of those two things, but I decided it wasn't for me after all. But yeah, that that's about right.
0: Wow. Yeah. So I am quite enamored with this pickup basketball idea. And it's a shame <laughs> that never came into fruition, because even whether it's, I feel like that could apply to so many different sports, you know, like soccer, I guess there's probably less hockey in, in uh, California, but still, you know, like people want to come together and they go to a specific venue for this activity with sports and no one's there. There are just too many people there. And it's like the classic supply demand issue. Like, what do you do when there aren't enough people? Or there are too many people. How do you respond? And I feel like, yeah, I I can easily see like technology having a leading role for that. So you, you were picking up on something very early in the game.
1: It's a tough problem. It's a yeah. tough problem.
0: And then on the general.com idea, I find that th- there are so many emerging technologies coming through right now. And it sounds like from your experience that all because... There is a dip or there is a loss of interest for a brief amount of time. Um, that doesn't mean that the industry itself is dead. Like focus on what are the underlying use cases? are, are those still present, regardless of whether the public perception still holds holds true? And public interest in something is always changing and is very fluid. And that oftentimes isn't an indicator over the long term of whether a specific technology will be transformative like the internet. Right, totally agree. It's about are you solving problems for people? Such a unique time when you were coming out of law school. So and obviously now is also a unique time. So It's great that you were interested in public service then and have found other ways of serving now. So I wanted to zoom in on a tweet of yours. It really caught my attention and you tweeted and I quote, changing laws have diminishing returns for justice once they're put into practice. We need to change the legal system itself if we ever want to be a truly democratic society. So I love that quote. And there's so much going on there. And and now there are no Twitter word count limits. (laughs) So could you could you say a bit more about what you were aiming at with with that tweet?
1: Sure. The law is only as good as enforcement. Mm -hmm. So something written on the books doesn't mean anything unless people respect what's written on the books. And then you have to unpack what does it mean to respect what's written on the books? Well, Let's say that one person abides by a law. Let's say it's a civil law impacting how we're doing business with each other. Let's say one person abides by that law and the other person doesn't. What do you do? What are your options? Well, you have to, generally speaking, find some legal claim, whether it's in tort or contract. And in order to effect a legal claim, in order to move forward on it, you have to, generally speaking, hire an attorney and go through court. And if you are one of the many millions of Americans who cannot afford to hire an attorney or are intimidated by the process of, uh, and the prospect of going to court, then what do you do? How do you perfect that law? How do you enjoy the fruits of it? And that's the whole point. It's one thing to change the laws, but if you don't have a mechanism where people can live in harmonious society by those laws then there are diminishing returns to that changed law yeah. yeah that's so beautifully said
0: and we see it every day part of what we i'm sure care a lot about is the access to justice piece and when there are the financial costs of going through formal dispute systems and you know, in many communities, a lot of this is just like jargon, right? So there's the intimidation factor that you picked up on. And I feel like that tweet and your description of it now speaks a lot to fair claims itself, your company that you founded. And yeah, maybe we can just do a origin stories narrative. Like, what led to you wanting to create fair claims? What were the problems you were trying to solve?
1: It's exactly this problem of mm-hmm. people not being able to get their day, right? And the problem of uh, law is only available to those who can afford it or or who are comfortable with it. And that's not most people. And so the, the origin probably goes back to even before law school and seeing a world where there were haves and have-nots, right? I grew up first on the in a nice neighborhood until I was seven in Hancock Park in Los Angeles, and then in more of a middle working class neighborhood from the age of seven until college. And I saw that people in that neighborhood, it's a fine place, but just kind of more of a normal place, Monterey Park, east of downtown LA, in between East LA and Pasadena. I saw that people were treated differently out there than, than where I had grown up before, And saw that throughout my life, right? So that's part of the origin story, right? And then in law school, reading about online dispute resolution, and it was a seed that got planted in the back of my head. I I thought it wasn't practical at the time. I didn't know (laughs) how you could actually do it, like thinking about what people expected in court, right? But obviously we're in a hyper digital age now, especially after COVID, but that was another seed. And then the others came as I started practicing law and working at different legal tech companies, and the main, the main thing was when I had my own practice for small businesses and startups, I kept getting calls from people with two, $3,000 disputes they couldn't resolve and they needed help. And they, they kind of knew there was small claims court, right? But they didn't want to go through with it for whatever reason, either because it took three months to get a hearing date or because it was a lot of paperwork they didn't want to deal with or because it was intimidating or, or whatever, because or they couldn't take time off work or half a day or full day, maybe it wasn't didn't feel quite worth it, but they wanted some justice right and they didn't think about what it cost to hire an attorney or, or they couldn't afford to hire me any, any of those things might have applied and I would get two, three plus phone calls like that a month. So it just got me thinking about, you know, in this day and age, people should be able to resolve these things uh, quicker, easier, and online, right, and and in a less intimidating way. So I I just couldn't stop thinking about what a solution might look like for that. And I think all of this is tied in together. It's the very fact that um, you have to follow the law. But in order to understand the law, you have to pay money to an attorney to interpret the law. Yeah. (laughs) What if you don't have the money to pay the attorney? You're still expected to follow the law. Yeah. So it's all the same. It's all tied in. Yeah. I mean,
0: you're really raising like causal factors that lead to inequitable outcomes, right? The With the financial piece, I think many people, most people want to follow the law, but the, the knowledge and the ease of following the law isn't equally distributed in our society. Um And it kind of even goes back to your recognition of the use case of the internet immediately after law school and during law school. And you're kind of like merging them together in this online dispute resolution space. And I guess one thing that comes to mind is that changing the legal system can be hard. And there's a lot of resistance every step of the way. I might be oversimplifying, but sometimes there's a camp that things... Uh, Things are perfectly fine and there's no need to change these systems because they've lasted, they've been durable for a long enough time. And then there are people who have experienced some of the many of the shortcomings of the status quo and are trying to change it both from within and from outside of these really rigid systems uh, and so what role do you think technology can play in changing the legal
1: system, changing how disputes are resolved? I think you hit the nail on the head in identifying that the major hurdle to change is not necessarily technology. It's actually those who have vested interest in the current system being open to reform. That That's the main hurdle, right? And for innovators like us, it's about proving to people who have vested interest in the current system that we can design a new system that is still better for everyone. Mm. <laughs> you know, that even if you are giving relative power and access to other people who haven't had it, even if you're leveling the playing field somewhat, and it's never going to be fully level. Well, I shouldn't say never, but that's, that's pretty tough to get to, right? Yeah. Just because people have different backgrounds, uh, knowledge, power, money, but if you but if you get a more level playing field, it's about proving that that's good for everybody. Yeah. You know? And so that's what we've always sought out to do. That's what we fundamentally believe: is that it's better for everyone if you don't have this justice gap. It's better for everyone if 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 people can be heard and move on more quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not a technology thing. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's an entrenched interest thing.
0: Yeah, and part of that also involves like changing these perceptions, changing the narrative, like framing it, framing change and framing equitable outcomes for benefits from society rather than a threat or harm that will come as a result of it. And in law school, we kind of see unease around that. Or discomfort around change, and there's a certain amount of status quo bias at times. And so I oftentimes like think, by naming the problem, is that the first step to changing perceptions? Or will naming the problem lead to greater entrenchments between, as you mentioned, like people who have the status quo, Bias and benefits at play versus those who have been harmed, you know, like, what is that first step to lead to a perception change in
1: the legal industry for equitable outcomes? Such a great question, and um, my views have evolved on that over time. So I used to believe that it's better to not name the problem. Mm. Now I believe the opposite. I think you have to name the problem because I think everybody knows there's a problem. I think if you don't name the problem, you don't you don't bring enough attention to it. Yeah. So you know, I tried it the other way where you, you just don't talk about it, but I think then everyone ignores it. <laughs> so I think you have to shout it. I think you have to shout it, but I think, but I think along with that, you can point out, hey, this, this can still be good for everyone. This is about system design, you know, you yeah. we don't have to accept one system that was designed 300 years ago for the modern era, right? And, yeah. and uh, we can also recognize that there's always room for reform if we want to create a, a, a just and democratic system. And that's yeah. something we should be talking about. And I agree with you. I mean, I I, I find that I find people don't, or I guess maybe I'm presuming something you're saying or taking some. Go for it. <laughs> what you're implying, but it, which is that when I when I first went to law school, I thought it would be a salon of ideas and <laughs> and amazing exchange and and debate. Right. And that we would uh, we would get philosophical about about this sort of thing. Right i did not find that did not happen (laughs) like we were all too busy trying to get a's to get (laughs) good jobs at corporate law firms (laughs) why to make money i mean i was disappointed Hmm. i was disappointed i was like wait a second aren't we supposed to be trying to change the world and it was like "Ah, i kind of just want to make my 200k (laughs) like all right well that's fine that's fine, but can we at least talk about it? I don't have time. I've got to make my 200k, and then I go to a law firm. I go to a law firm, and it's like uh, the people who were heralded as uh, you know as the heroes of law firm were the people who I don't think should be heralded as heroes. Like it was like oh, I mean, I'm trying to think. I mean, there's there's client confidentiality, but basically, it was like oh, this you know this law partner, and I'm not going to say whether it was my law firm or a different law firm, right? I'm just talking about people who I met along the way in corporate law who were talking about other corporate law partners, right? Yeah. Oh, this law partner, there was this huge natural disaster where this one company did a really terrible thing that I remembered reading about when I was a kid. That was like, it like killed animals. It, people lost jobs. It, you know, it, it, um, it was one of the like most horrible environmental disasters we ever had. And they were all saying, he's such an amazing lawyer. They haven't paid a penny. And I was like, "Is this really, <laughs> like, seriously? This is where this is what the top grads of the top law schools are doing, and yeah, <laughs> that's what the top law grads of the top law schools are doing." So, um, yeah, we don't pay enough attention to it. I tried the other way of kind of being quiet about it. Now, mm-hmm. now I'm realizing we got to shout it.
0: Mm. Yeah, you're you're touching such interesting things, and. In- I've had I had a similar experience, you know, where in law school, there's kind of like the rat race for I gave this talk for one orientation about escaping the rat race and being content with serendipitous outcomes. Um, And I, I do think that maybe the great challenge for legal academia and law schools throughout the country is allowing students to be incentivized to for the sake of learning in and of itself rather than the outcomes that will come from getting good grades because in my experience like right now the the focus that's solely on the good grades it can lead to like prestigious outcomes and all of those things but the dialogue and the exchange the the, the free thoughts that are flowing can be diminished if you're just focused on those good notes and medals and all of those things and that that's where like I, I don't know I don't know what the answer is but I'm with you in like shouting it screaming it and making sure that people understand the challenge rather than sweeping it under the rug. And then with law firms a challenge for lawyers we all have these ethical obligations but it's also, about our moral compass. And are we going to be content with what a mighty law firm says is the right thing to do? Or are we gonna kind of reframe the problem? My experience is right now, it's kind of just focused on getting the attention of the powerful within these legal institutions and kind of just following along. And and that's a rat race in and of itself. Uh, and my hope is that people start to focus more on like the outcomes of doing that. And the, do I say, the harms in society that can be created both for the individual that's just following along, but also like the negative externalities, environmental issues, for example. Um, these are hard issues that you're raising here. <laughs> hey,
1: we, you know, we may as well have fun. <laughs> so uh,
0: to, to go back a bit, you mentioned briefly how the pandemic has really had this impact on online dispute resolution. And I, I just wanted to circle back to that. Over the past 20 months, relative to what existed prior to those 20 months, what from both your vantage point, but also from fair claims vantage point has changed during this, this pandemic?
1: Sure. Well, um, we're much more in people's consideration set now. And there were a lot more objections pre-COVID to using an online dispute resolution platform and many, many fewer objections now. And I think the the key was lawyers experiencing it for themselves. And so now everybody has, or not everybody, a, a number of lawyers have had Mediations, arbitrations, court matters heard on Zoom. A, a number of lawyers have cross-examined somebody on Zoom or, you know, had many different proceedings on Zoom. So that in and of itself changed things quite a bit because number one, lawyers realize, hey, it's pretty nice to work from home. And that seriously is the biggest driver, right? So when I talk to lawyers now about using fair claims, they say, yeah, you know, I don't want to go back to the days where I had to drive an hour to court or arbitration or, you know, even 45 minutes to go see my client if I don't have to. I don't want to go back to my commute. I don't want to get stuck in traffic again. Uh, Or I have a vacation home, you know, somewhere and I want to to be able to work out of there from time to time. So that's the number one thing really that I have found is that they are all saying, like a lot of us, hey, working from home is not so bad my team was productive. I still got business. I still have clients and I personally like it. And, and the trade-offs are are worth it. That, that was number one. Number two was the experience of actually having these proceedings online via zoom, mainly showed them that, you know what, I can get most of, most of it done. I, the things I maybe was afraid about before about maybe my witness, not paying attention and being able to answer questions properly or, them getting distracted or not being able to, you know, have rapport with the, with the trier of fact, et cetera, that's less of a concern now. Cause I've tried it and it worked okay. It worked good enough, you know, for the other benefits. And some of them have started to realize, Hey, I can grow an even bigger practice by, by embracing technology more. Right. I mean, throughout history, every time there's new technology, every protectionist industry, including the legal industry. Uh, is afraid of it, right? Yeah. When the typewriter came along, oh, we're good. It's going to put lawyers out of work. It's like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I've always believed whenever I had my law practice, that reputation was the most important thing, the, the Abe Lincoln way, that that it's important that people know and understand who you are and that you're looking out for them. And even if you don't make all your money gouging one client, right, That you that over time you'll get repeat business and that you're Cost of new client acquisition will go down because people will refer their friends to you and so, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these benefits that because of the pandemic, lawyers um, are are seen firsthand and now much more open to ODR.
0: Yeah. And and this is kind of touching on how in general, right, we see it with e-commerce, like the internet can be a tool for scaling. And now with ODR, we see, and especially the greater adoption of ODR during the pandemic, we see people recognizing that we can scale more effectively by using these tools. It's not going to detract from the process of resolving disputes. In fact, it can just like expand our level of engagement in different communities, speaking to like access to justice so that people are aware of us and we can engage with them, hopefully with lower costs. So that, that's, that's really exciting when you think about it. That's, that's really exciting. And so I I sometimes think of the era, you know, with the emergence, the early emergence of ODR around the time when you were coming out of law school or in law school. I I think of that as like ODR 1.0, where we're just, we're using the internet um, and ICT tools to engage with disputants and Something I keep thinking about is what will be ODR 2.0? What are going to be the technologies of the next 10 years or even five years that will be integrated with ODR to resolve disputes more effectively? Do you have any thoughts on that? What What are you thinking?
1: It's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, and even before I graduated law school, eBay and Amazon were resolving disputes in such a way that people didn't even necessarily think about it as dispute resolution. But yeah, obviously they have a they have a history of mediation on eBay. And then with Amazon, just the fact that you can quickly get a refund or or get you know get get a new package sent out. Uh, that's online dispute resolution too, of course. And it's obviously helped them grow right? It, the fact that people trust that if I order on Amazon, they'll fix my problem, right? And that's that's what we were talking about earlier, where you, you go and you tell the, the current stakeholders of the legal system, hey, it actually could benefit you to build more trust by resolving more disputes instead of having this ugly underbelly and resentment and social media backlash and a negative impact on your brand, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Look at Amazon, look at eBay, right? So anyway, but in terms of the future, you know, uh, there's, there's, some people are saying blockchain right and smart contracts i think it's a little early for that i think in 10 to 15 years that could be it depends on what happens with with blockchain and and crypto right and and um, but i think even if that's true it's all about trust and i think human beings should always be involved in dispute resolution because there's no replacement for wisdom you can you can build an ai to do workflows you can build an ai to uh, have efficiencies you can have a smart contract with rules but Ultimately, if two people are unhappy with something, it's hard to be heard by a robot. And I think you still need a human for, for certain disputes that aren't resolved automatically to make you feel heard and to have the wisdom to make the right judgment based on all the thousands of years of human evolution experience. So I think what will happen in the future is there will be more automated workflows for easier dispute resolution earlier in the process. So I think you can keep get getting earlier and earlier into detecting a dispute, predicting a dispute, and resolving it with automated workflows, right? But at, you'll, I think you still need humans for the ones that don't get resolved early. That's one area. The other area would be uh, you know the use of VR technology and jury duty, for example, especially in a more remote world, especially with more people liking that, getting used to it, something that allows you to get a better sense of the credibility of a witness, right? I think that would be a good good area for ODR.
0: Yeah, I I find VR fascinating, and the the one challenge with it is just the cost. I, I think Oculus is the cheapest for VR, and yet it's it's I I think it's like four hundred dollars, and so it would be limited at least for now. It would be limited for who can access it. But when you think about the flexibility it brings, and we're all aspiring to still collaborate with one another, and not allow technology to obfuscate messages and vr has currently has the capabilities for people to engage with one another as if they were right next to each other Mm -hmm. and the the beauty is when you apply that to courts that people can be anywhere and yet (laughs) there's all this talk about the metaverse right like (laughs) and so with vr you can be anywhere but still in a proximate location in virtual space to people that you are collaborating with whether it's on a jury panel um, or your counsel that you're speaking with uh, that's representing you for dispute and I just I just think of all the benefits that can flow from it once the the cost issue is is satisfied and then you raise the issue with with artificial intelligence and, and blockchains and all of those are really interesting to keep an eye on. And it's a really interesting space. And only time will tell, as you mentioned. And a lot of it will probably just depend on how successful well, it's scaling blockchain would be with transactions. Mm. And the more ubiquitous it is for people to transact using smart contracts on a blockchain, then you know, when new technologies are created and more people are engaging with them, you just have to ask, how are those disputes going to be resolved? And, and that's like a, a really important role for companies like yours when blockchains or blockchain transactions are more ubiquitous because courts, I think, would are <laughs> struggling to to figure out even what those things, what these technologies are. And then you speak to the trust piece and how... Stakeholders engaging with some of these technologies have very different expectations around power, around identity, frankly. You know, these are pseudonymous structures. So, opting into a court system where pseudonymity doesn't exist would scare a lot of people away. So, yeah, I, I'm with you. I think there are exciting technologies at play, but it's just a question of time and. Trust, that's all these systems are. The the legal system is, at least courts are a bit fortunate to have the power of the state behind them. And even when they operate, dare I say, with distrust from key stakeholders that have been harmed by the state, their legitimacy flows from the state, so they will always be in existence so long as the state is there. Mm -hmm. And ODR doesn't really have the privilege or I don't know if it's a privilege or a shortcoming, they don't, they don't have that backing of the state in the same way the courts do. And so that's why platforms like yours have to really focus on trust. And so how, how do you think about inspiring stakeholder trust with your, with your
1: platforms? Sure. No, it's a great question. Well, I think it's about, a number of things it, it yeah trust is number one I think whether it's courts government fair claims and I think it's about education right so yeah. I, I think uh, giving people more context on the underlying regulations for arbitration uh, how it's set up uh, what what they're able to do with an arbitration award right so they can they can get an arbitration award and ultimately go enforce it in court if they if they need to, so it's it's. Um, I agree with you. It's not it's not the same legitimacy that uh, that courts have enjoyed over time. But for those who are aware of the of the Federal Arbitration Act and how arbitration societies are set up and the fact that you can enforce on an award that it is binding and and et cetera, Then then I think once people dig into that world a little more, which is a world I knew nothing about before starting Fair Claims. Right, I was thinking about. How can I get people to settle things online? And I just started researching and got obsessed with it. And (laughs) I've been doing it for some years, but it's building a relationship, right? With everybody who comes through the platform that can be done digitally, that can be done with humans, right? So if it's companies that are interested in using our platform, it's building that relationship with trust in mind. Uh, And so letting them get to know who we are, what we're about, what we value, getting to know them also showing them that we're not going to be lapdogs either that, you know, I think some, some companies, uh, because this is like a quote unquote private court sometimes get the idea that, Oh, well, since I'm paying for it, I, maybe that means I'm, I'm going to get an outcome that's more favorable. (laughs) And some, some, there are some large corporations that do think that way. Right. And who, when they're picking an arbitrator or mediator, they look at past results and look at, well, did I win or lose? Were they, did they beat me up too hard? Well, I'm not going to use them again. We always set the tone and expectation early on that we don't play that, you know, and that we think long-term about trust and about their brand and about people trusting them too. And if they want to use us, they're going to they're gonna lose or win based on the arbitrator and the arbitrator has total independence. Mm-hmm to do what they want so i think part of building trust is not is is them is people getting to know you but also you setting boundaries right uh, i think you can trust someone who sets boundaries on integrity because you say to yourself well if they're going to do that with me they'll probably do it with the other side and then maybe they actually are fair so not everyone thinks that way we've had companies who have come along who have decided not to work with us because they see that or have started working with us and then see decisions they don't love and then stop working with us. And we made the decision early on, that's okay. We're gonna think long-term.
0: Those are important boundaries to set and I imagine not always easy. So kudos to you and your team for for sticking to that. I I know that relatively recently, Fair Claims has kind of launched fast-track arbitration. Uh, Could you explain what that is and how it fits within the broader arbitration market?
1: Sure, so for years, so we've been around near about 7 years now for <clears throat> for most of that time we only handled small claims disputes under $25,000 the reason is we wanted to start small we wanted to perfect this automated arbitration platform we wanted to really figure out the drivers of the emotion and psychology around disputes right and get really good at it and also because pre covid Nobody would have taken us seriously if we said, hey, we're going to resolve a million dollar dispute online. It just wouldn't fly. It was hard enough getting people to pay attention to small claims. Interestingly, small claims under $25,000 represent about 70 plus percent of all disputes. So it's not what gets the attention in the headlines, but it's, it's what most people deal with. And that's big dollars to most people. So there were a number of reasons we started with that, but we had always planned on handling higher dollar disputes. And as people started using the platform, more and more people asked us to handle higher dollar disputes for them, and uh, we got more and more of that feedback. And then when COVID hit, that grew even more, and people got even more comfortable with the notion of it. So that's why we decided to launch Fast Track for disputes of any dollar amount, no cap on the rules, and and it's a ninety day process. So. Most arbitration on average will take about a year and cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars at least, right? 40, 50, sixty thousand dollars. This is 90 days and costs two, three, five thousand dollars, depending on the dispute amount. Our focus is mainly on six figure disputes. I do think there's a natural limit to what you might want to have ODR resolve, right? <clears throat> if it's a hundred million dollar dispute, y- you probably want to go through the full, process right and you can afford it and it, and it makes sense and and based on some of the trade-offs of online versus offline you may decide that's that's best and and maybe courts best for you and you want to reserve having an appeal and etc but if it's a hundred thousand dollar dispute you know uh, maybe you don't want to spend fifty thousand dollars to resolve it and especially if you, if there's a competent qualified arbitrator which we have we have great arbitrators then you you might want to do it Online. Uh, if if it's the right kind of matter based on having a more streamlined set of rules, you know, we're we're kind of lighter on discovery, for example, versus court, although the arbitrator has discretion to expand discovery where appropriate, but that's based on looking at how litigation is is fought now and knowing that a lot of time and money is put into discovery and trying to separate out whether that's always necessary or not. So I think that's
0: exciting. I I find that really exciting and specifically because the history of ODR has always been aligned with small claims issues. And as you mentioned, like less than 25 K amount in controversy, and a lot of courts now are trying to roll out small claims, ODR processes. And you're kind of illustrating that the interest from the market is much larger than just these small claims issues and 25K or less amount modern controversy issues. So I, I think it's an exciting opportunity for ODR generally to illustrate that it's not just in the one cabinet of small amounts and it can actually be applied for larger disputes. So so that's great. And one thing that, that came up at least it came to mind when, when you were sharing all of this is that before the pandemic, the level of interest in large amount and controversy disputes was less, hence the reason why Fast Track wasn't in existence. But during the pandemic, that has become more and more popular. So I guess maybe looking into the future with your crystal ball, how do you think the post-pandemic world will shape out for some of these changed preferences we've talked about? Are they gonna be temporary change preferences or are they gonna be more seismic, long-term change preferences?
1: Most of the lawyers I'm talking to, and I talk to a number of lawyers day in, day out, most of them are saying this is here to stay, that that a lot of it's gonna stick around, that they really like having the option, at least of doing things online and like working remotely. Some of the attorneys miss being in person. Uh, Some of them do they, and, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to personality. So if you're more outgoing and social, then you kind of enjoy taking the trip out to another state, another city, driving downtown, you know, seeing people you're used to working with, right. Seeing opposing counsel, meeting in person, uh, having, having lunch together, right. Uh, Some, some people miss the good lunches. So a lot of the arbitration companies have really fancy, good catered lunches, right. And some people, Also miss that right and want that. And so that's human, right? That that makes sense. So there are a certain percentage who like that. Then there are a certain percentage who say, Oh no, I'm gonna do remote as much as I can. I love being at home with my family or you know, just not yeah, not being stuck in traffic, etc. And then there are some who are kind of in the middle and say, I want to, I want to, I want a mix of things, but at least the option. But I would say the vast majority of people I talk to, maybe there's some bias there, right? Because of what I do although I call on attorneys who have never heard of us uh, all over the country to pick their brains, I would say the vast majority I'm talking to uh, at least want the option of online and, and the plurality, I think, want to stay online more than than b- before. Yeah,
0: that, that's so interesting and makes me even wonder, you know, like if, if the pandemic has long-term implications, what will those implications be? I imagine law firms startups uh established companies are going to be investing even more in collaboration tools and then within the court system or at least the dispute resolution system i i imagine we could be looking at one another like we need more fair claims uh or like fair claims needs to be more robust uh so in terms of like advertisements how do you think about and I know you mentioned that you reach out to people who've never heard of you, but how do you think about like pitching fair claims and ODR to people who, who are on the fence between having this long-term system or just like once the pandemic is done, we're going back?
1: Yeah, well, we, uh, we more go after the people who I think are, are thinking that they want to stay online for now. And then in terms of, but in terms of pitching to people on the fence, I think it's just being um, open about the trade-offs, right? And I think it's acknowledging that they have valid reasons for wanting to do things in person and that not every uh, legal matter should be done online. That's absolutely true. And, and that also that personal preference matters that if, if, if I'm an attorney who does better in person, that's a factor, right? Cause that's gonna be a way for me to better serve my client. And also my personal satisfaction and joy for the, for the job matters too. So I think it's all about being open about those trade-offs and, and more for us, we focus on learning who wants to use us and how, and um, how can we, how can we keep growing that? And I think consumers have been more open to doing things online than attorneys, but now attorneys are more open to it. Yeah. I think you're right that there's going to be more investment in collaboration tools, et cetera, because there are enough attorneys who want to work remotely at least part of the time. I think they're all having discussions about how many days a week should we be in person versus not. There are some attorneys who I think like the idea of having their their team in person, right? Because I think there is still this old concept that if people work from home, they won't get as much work done, They'll, they'll goof off, right? This is just my interpretation, right? As I hear attorneys have these conversations our team has always been at least partly distributed, partly remote because we always said, well, if somebody's in person, what are we staring at their screen the whole time to see that they're working on work stuff? I mean, you can goof off in person too. I had plenty of jobs where I goofed off at work. Like most of the time, you know, Um, me too. (laughs) Right. Right. That's why I Right. So that's why I'm an entrepreneur because I didn't like having a job. Right. So I, I know, I know what it's like. Like, if, if you want to not work, you don't work. But then I think it just depends on your values. Like, if you respect people, they're more respectful. They, if you give them trust, they'll they'll uh, often reward you for that. And the ones who don't, then okay, you you talk to them about it. Maybe they're not the right team members for this kind of setup, and maybe you have a mix. But I, that's what I hear is I hear attorneys saying they want to work from home, but then some of them and most of them. Most of them saw that their team was able to be effective at home, but then some of them are a little nervous about it. So I know that coming up, you have
0: some really interesting things you're working on outside of fair claims. And one of those, there's this marketplace risk management conference. Uh, Would you like to give us like an insight into what you'll be presenting about and ways that people can kind of hear your long form conversation and presentation about that?
1: Sure. That's a conference uh, that's going to be in San Francisco. And I've been a part of this group for a few years now. And it's, um, it's a group of sharing economy companies, which happens to be most of the companies who use our platform. They were the early adopters, right? Because I think they have very specific problems being a marketplace, being caught in the middle between two users, and also we're o- more open-minded to something new and different, right? So we work with a number of those companies, AMG, Thumbtack, Turo, Get Around outdoorsy peer space boat setter. Anyway, so we'll be presenting next week. I'll be presenting with an attorney on arbitration and arbitration clauses in terms of service. And specifically, I'm going to be addressing mass arbitration, which is a new uh, trend with plaintiff's attorneys getting thousands of people to arbitrate at the same time. And you can read all all about how this happened with Uber and DoorDash and some of the other... Companies, right. So uh, it's very very interesting new trend, you know, and so we'll be talking about the trade-offs of which arbitration services you use, you know, because that doesn't happen to us because our fees are low and our process is efficient. So it's like better just to get disputes resolved or it doesn't happen to us as often. And we're going to be working on a new mass arbitration protocol that's sort of fair to everybody and addresses this issue of, if 12,000 people arbitrate at once, what do you do? I believe it's good to get at the underlying merits, but to respect all sides. I mean, this all came out of the fact that with arbitration, there's a prohibition on class action lawsuits. I have very mixed feelings about that. I think that's a very there's it's very interesting, a lot of trade-offs. I also know the feeling of if you're part of a class and there's a class action of getting a postcard that you should go redeem your 43 cents and that's... <laughs> And the plaintiff lawyers, meanwhile, walk away with millions. So I think there's like yeah. trade-offs all around. I think it's good for plaintiff's lawyers to keep corporations in check. I think it's it's good for public policy reasons. I think it's good for people to have this option of some sort of action that doesn't require them to take the full dispute to resolution. They can join a, a group. I think it's, it's a challenge to thread that needle, something we're, we're taking on. But at the same time, I also think that if, if you have a dispute, that it's nice for you to have a fair form to resolve it. So this is an interesting area we'll be talking more about at that conference. Cool, cool. Well, I'm excited to, to
0: hear what comes out of it. And uh, it's, it's a hard balance to strike. It's really hard. And I think, you know, just having people like you exploring it in greater depth Is from even just a public policy perspective it's a it's a noble act if you will and i can i can see the public servants in you just in, in how you're describing these challenges so that's great so a couple weeks ago we were both at this aba tech expo and the final question you gave during your during that presentation your presentation was basically asking attendees a wonky idea that they had about using technology with resolving disputes, and so now I have this opportunity to ask you that question how how what are these wonky ideas that you have around tech and dispute
1: systems? yeah, it's always fun to to throw a curveball in <laughs> uh, I didn't know it would come at me uh no but uh, <laughs> Yeah. And I enjoyed your presentation there very much too. And I was, Thank I was looking forward to connecting after, yeah. uh, you know, one, one wonky, idea, we have a couple, uh, one, one wonky idea that we've never tested out is let's take the, let's take the, uh, use case of somebody owes you money. Right. That's a big part of, of, of law, right. An unpaid invoice. Let's take an independent contractor did work and got stiffed on an invoice and they're owed $2,000 for the purpose of this hypothetical. Let's assume that the facts are on their side. Okay. And maybe there's some way of screening that, but one wonky idea we've always kind of joked about, but actually think there might be something there is like, what if you told their mom, (laughs) what if the person owes you $2,000? What if you told their mom, Hey, this person's mom, you owe me $2,000 or, or father or family member, uh, uh, a significant other, you know, partner, kids, somebody in their inner circle. So you take whoever their inner circle is somehow figure that out. Whoever is close, close enough to them to care about them, but also want them to do the right thing. And you tell that person, hey, so-and-so owes me $1,500, they stiffed me. That'd be kind of interesting, I think. Yeah. And it, it goes back, kind of what
0: was implied in a lot of this conversation is like accountability, accountability within the legal system and also for specific actors within the legal system. And this is one way of holding people accountable it's rather than you know towing their car away or putting them in prison it's like informing a close loved one of something that they need to do to correct so that's yeah i'm actually even reminded of and, and this is probably going in the wrong direction <laughs> of the wonky idea nassim taleb has this book uh, skin in the game and In it, he talks about systems that have skin in other people's game. And so it's kind of like holding people hostage or ransoms, right? Like kidnapping a loved one and being like, ah, now you owe me a million dollars. You have skin in other people's games, not exactly your game. And that obviously is like the extreme, but this, this wonky idea you're proposing, I feel like is a really healthy way of skin in other people's game where you can hold people accountable
1: through that i like that yeah i i yeah absolutely i mean pre-industrialization right and maybe a little before that and we used to live in villages right Yeah. Basically. and where we would hold each other accountable right and if you if you got if you got really out of line you were asked to leave but but yeah i think getting more back to that kind of community accountability we have some thoughts on that too on how communities can get involved in dispute resolution right yeah. i think that's that's worth thinking about
0: yeah yeah so there are uh, and i just want to thank you for your time and one sure. thought that i wanted to to share is there there are these truth and reconciliation commissions that are coming up in in a handful of cities i believe the three leading ones right now are san francisco Philadelphia and Boston. And basically like how they're designing it is almost in a restorative justice way where key stakeholders from the community and all stakeholders in the community are like involved in dialogue, sharing conversations and personal anecdotes around challenges individuals and families have had dealing with the legal system and the police. Uh, And I, I feel like that's also something you're alluding to here is like within that. How do we engage the community rather than just individual actors?
1: Right. I love and I love that. And you know, criminal justice is an even bigger problem, right? And uh, and it and it gets due attention as it should, right? But but I think uh, I think that's right that this that the civil justice system is a less talked about problem, but but also a big problem. And I think you could learn they could learn from each other, you know, very, for sure. yeah, for sure. Well, with that, Stephen, Leon
0: Kane, thank you so much for joining. This was an amazing conversation. I think I, I learned plenty from you. So I'm, I'm really grateful to you.
1: This was a lot of fun. Yeah, really enjoyed yeah. it. Thanks for having me. Cool.